0: Hello and welcome to the Bossed Up podcast episode 160. I'm your host Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. Today's conversation is with a fellow author and workplace strategist who I know you are all going to love. Her name is Erica Kesswin, and she studies what it means to be human at work, and specifically, counsels organizations and consults organizations on how to bring their human to work. We're going to break down what that means, how you can create a workplace that works for all human beings, and how you can advocate for your humanity on a basic level in the places you work and demand it in all employers moving forward. So stick around. This is a great conversation full of practical, instantly applicable tips and strategies for managing our smartphone addictions and making meetings less terrible and less frequent and less of a time suck and designing workplaces that aren't full of distraction of the human or technological variety. So stick around. You won't want to miss it. Now, as you listen to this episode, if you're listening on the day of publication, I am currently on my way to San Jose, California to give a workshop all about burnout prevention for an association of women in real estate in the Bay Area, having literally just returned from the LA area two days ago after filming another course for you all on LinkedIn Learning. And it reminded me that I want to share with with y'all that my most recent course with LinkedIn Learning just came out and it's all about managing career burnout. You'll learn the root causes of burnout, how to identify burnout symptoms and triggers, how to reframe helplessness, ask for help, and how to advocate for your own sustainable success. Check it out at the link in today's show notes and connect with me on LinkedIn. While you're there, you can ask questions about the course in real time that I always take time to answer. You can also find my other course with LinkedIn that I first produced with them earlier this year, all about stepping up as a male ally at work. And I'm so thrilled to share that LinkedIn and I have teamed up for a couple more courses before the year is out. So stay tuned for more info and let me know what you think of these courses and what kinds of professional and personal development courses you'd love to see next. All right, without further ado, let's hop into today's conversation with Erica Keswin. Erica is a workplace strategist who has worked for the past 20 years with some of the most iconic brands in the world as a consultant, speaker, author, and professional dot connector. Her best-selling book, Bring Your Human to Work, was published by McGraw-Hill in the fall of 2018. I've got a copy of it in my hands right now, and it's fantastic. Her work has been seen in Harvard Business Review, Forbes, HuffPo, O Magazine, Entrepreneur, Better Homes and Gardens, Mogul, Quartz, Fast Company, you name it, and a bunch of fantastic companies, organizations, and associations all across the country. She's the founder of the Spaghetti Project as well, which we're going to talk more about today, a platform devoted to sharing the science and stories of relationships at work. Erica, thank you so much for joining me in the Boston podcast. Thank you for having me. So I was excited to stumble upon your work because. You, like me, value a solid research-driven argument, (laughs) and especially a research-driven argument for bringing a humanist approach to the workplace. Where did you get your start? Like, How did you get involved in understanding and, and exploring what working human really looks like?
1: Well, I came to it from a very personal perspective. As a person, I've always been a connector. You know, if you ask people that have known me my whole life, from nursery school through business school, through my professional life, and if you were to say to them, what is one word, if you were describe, Erica, what's the first word that would come to mind? And I would say nine times out of 10, people would say the word connector. So I've always enjoyed connecting people with people, connecting people with ideas, connecting people with jobs. I worked in executive recruiting. I've set up a few marriages. So it's sort of in <laughs> my blood. And I started to see from a very personal perspective that The role that technology was playing in my own relationship. So a fun story I can share was that I got my first iPhone. It kind of dates me, but in 1998, I got a BlackBerry. And I remember at the time, my fiance now husband said to me, Hey, I have a conference in Bermuda. Do you want to come? And I remember saying, well, I don't have any vacation days, but I have this new handy dandy device and I could go and go to this conference and sit on the beach and, and work. And I remember (laughs) saying to myself out loud, you know, this is the life. This is the coolest thing. I can't believe it. Fast forward 10 years, the iPhone came out and I got one, but I loved my Blackberry and didn't get rid of it. So I'm walking around with two phones and in trying to integrate this technology into my life in contrast to that moment in the beach in Bermuda, I remember to my saying to myself, I can't believe this is my life. And so that really was the beginning of looking at technology connection. And because my background has always been looking at the human side of business and human resources and human capital, I began to study the impact of technology on connection at work and, and corporate culture, the good, the bad, and the ugly.
0: Yeah. That's how I got started. It's so interesting. You know, I remember also having a BlackBerry and iPhone glued to my hip when I was in the realm of campaigns and elections. I would wake up with both devices in my hands before my feet touch the ground every day. And I don't know about you, but I granted I wasn't sitting on a beach while working, but I still struggle feeling totally tethered to my devices And it's this sort of oxymoron between being hyper-connected, unlike we've ever been before, while also not having necessarily as much of that human-to-human, physical, in-person, eyeballs-to-eyeballs connection. So what are some of your biggest takeaways when looking into the research on how technologies impact our workforce?
1: Well, I would say a couple of things. I mean, the technology is designed this way for a reason. It is designed to suck us in. It is designed Mm. to give us a hit of dopamine every time we send and receive an email, which is why those of us who had Blackberries. Loved the little red light on the BlackBerry when it told (laughs) us that somebody wanted us. Totally. People who design these these tools are brilliant and they did it for a reason. What I would say is that sometimes we need to to give ourselves a break and know that. The second thing is, you'll have to excuse the cheesy pun, but left to our own devices, (laughs) we're not connecting. And so we need to know what we're up against and be intentional about where, when, and how we connect, or it's not going to happen. So this could be how we connect with our colleagues at work. It could be how we connect with our kids. It could be how we connect with ourselves. So in Bring Your Human to Work, my goal was to provide a roadmap, was to provide techniques and tools and protocols for people that do understand, you know, the challenge that we're up against, but do want to do something about Mm -hmm. it. And it's really a step-by-step approach. So whether that's going into a meeting and having rules around no technology, or, you know, instead of waking up, as you said, tethered to both devices in the morning, waiting even 15 minutes and (laughs) doing some deep breaths and having a cup of coffee before somebody else's agenda drives your own. It is those small things that can really make a big difference. But if we don't build them in intentionally, I swear, and I study this for a living, it just won't happen.
0: I've got your book in my hands here right now, which I adore. I love the subtitle. It kind of spells it all out. 10 Surefire Ways to Design a Workplace That's Good for People, Great for Business, and Just Might Change the World, as our world is, of course, rapidly changing around us. I want to start with one of the early premises in your book. First of all, I love that throughout the chapters, not only do you have research and a ton of case studies, but you also have very practical, actionable human action plans. And one of them early on talks about, here you talk about sustainability. And this is something that comes up at Bossed Up all the time because our mission is to help women craft happy, healthy, and sustainable career paths, not just hit it hard and then burn out even harder. You say- Quote, being sustainable is the key to making your workplace human. Playing the long game is just that, long. It can feel overwhelming and be hard to know where to start, but don't worry, you don't have to do it all at once. So my question is, let's say you do have buy-in from leadership or let's say you are in a leadership or, or managerial position. How do you begin to thinking about working human and start aiming in a more sustainable direction? Like what does working human really mean? And how do you get the company moving in that direction?
1: So when I define working human, it's about honoring relationships. Mm. And it's about like looking at everything you do through that lens. And again, honoring relationships with colleagues, with your boss, with your customers, and again, with yourself, and especially for women, we tend to put ourselves last on the list. Right. And it goes back to the adage, you know, you're on the airplane and you need to put the oxygen mask on yourself before you can put it on someone else. Mm -hmm. So when I think about the word human as it relates to to sustainability, I think about, you know, back in the day, the farmers would go to work and when the sun went down, they were done working. Even 20 years ago, for the most part, when we came home at the end of the day, that could be five, it could be seven o'clock at night. But we were done and we had that time to focus on our kids, our families, our parents, our pets, our friends, ourselves. But now that the world of work, because of the technology, you know, has bled into our home life. And when we come home from work, in most cases, you know, people still check their phones. It's very hard to ever be off. The question then becomes, how do we sustain this as humans? Mm. And so when I think about sustainability, I think about a couple of things and then that leads me to, well, what can we do? The first is flexible work and more and more, you know, millennials and Gen Z, millennials are going to make up 75 percent of the workforce by 2025 and 50 percent of the workforce by 2020, which literally in a, is in a few months. So those days are here. And one of the top three things that they want out of work is they want to work in a more flexible way. And I'm not saying everybody needs to work from home 100% of the time, nor do I think that that's the answer. But I do believe that if you're in a position of leadership and you know that work, even if the managers tell their employees not to work after a certain time, people are just doing it. Again, we can't help ourselves. And so on the flip side, to create a culture whereby we can take care of parts of our personal Mm. life during the day if If we need to, you know, it's not going to be every day, all day, but creating a culture where we know that if we have to run out and get a kid or take care of an elderly parent or go to a doctor's appointment, we don't have to book it six months out at seven o'clock at night when our doctor happens to have one late appointment. So that sort
0: of flexibility is one. I just want to jump in here, Erica, just to say like, I want every worker out there to feel more entitled to that as well. I'm always coaching our listeners to say, it is perfectly valid to say, I have an appointment. I have a meeting. I need to go to whatever I need to do to take care of whatever I need to take care of without divulging every last detail, so long as we're getting our work done, right? And there should be that inherent flexibility expected, and granted, not every ER nurse can walk out um, on her shift, but we should be treating each other and treating ourselves from that humanist approach by saying, I recognize that you are beyond your role at work. You have other roles that you are juggling because when we erase those other roles, we bring silence and shame and impossible expectations to everyone. So from both the leadership side and the employee or frontline staff side, we should all normalize that as best we can. And workplaces that don't do not deserve your loyalty. Well, a hundred percent. And I think especially in a
1: tight labor market like we have now, the new generations want very different things from work and they will leave. And so the good news here is that even leaders that, Deep, deep down, if you push them on it, don't love this, that they are more traditional. Yes. They are realizing that to keep up with the times, they're going to lose people. Yeah, adapt or die. <laughs> they are losing people. If you're not in a position of leadership, you know, if you're farther down, and then that's why there's a lot of great studies in the book. I mean, I wanted to approach these concepts both, I, I talk about sharing, the book shares the science and stories of Connection Network, that yeah. there is data to support this. And so if you're a person that's trying to bring change to your culture, go in there armed with the data to show that it's not just for you, it's for the organization
0: as a whole to think about these these types of things. Yeah. You know, one of the chapters in your book that really made that case was the one all about, you write, mind your meetings, honoring relationships of purpose, presence, and protocols. You touched upon this already, but I want to read one jaw-dropping sentence in the opening of this chapter where you wrote, each year we waste an estimated $37 billion on unproductive meetings with executives spending up to 23 hours of their work week in meetings. A lot of organizations that have brought me in for trainings and workshops and keynotes, their staff, when pressed to discuss some of the burnout triggers they're facing at work, often point to the fact that they have so many meetings that they don't have time to actually do their work. So what can we do to address this problem and make meetings more human? Hmm.
1: This is an important topic because we do spend so much time in meetings. So Mm -hmm. I broke this down into, as you said, these three, three ways. The first is purpose. Everyone should do a postmortem every week on all the meetings that they have. Um, There's actually one of the co-founders of Warby Parker. It's a practice that he has whereby you look at all the meetings and say, What was the purpose? I mean, sometimes people, when they really do this analysis, will find, you know, why do I have that 11 a.m. status meeting on Wednesdays? Oh, it's because I've always had it. Do I still need to have it? Actually not. But I've never taken the time to analyze it and then get rid of it. And it it just becomes something that that you do almost blindly. So I have found that you can almost reduce the number of meetings by 20 percent if you just do an assessment of is there... A purpose behind it. So that's, right. that's the first part. The second part is presence. You know, we all know that physical presence and mental psychological presence are two very different things. And so the data shows that when you have a meeting, even if it's a coffee with two friends and there's a phone on the table, it reduces the depth and substance of the meeting. And we've all been in those meetings where we go around the circle and someone says, hey, Erica, what did you think of such and such? And I say, wait, what? (laughs) Which which means basically texting under the table, which hurts productivity because everybody has to repeat themselves and hurts relationships. Somebody's presenting on something really important And it's just rude. So thinking about technology and maybe having a basket or maybe letting people pull them out for the last 10 minutes. I also find that when you do that, the meetings are just more productive and and faster. So it really is a win-win. And then finally thinking about the last P are protocols and, and how can you, you know, learn from other people's meetings again to make them more impactful. One of my favorite stories in the book is a guy named Todd Yellen, who's the SVP of product strategy at Netflix. And he has one of his protocols or rules of the road is the no wallflowers rule that if you want to come to his meeting, first, he has no technology. Mm -hmm. Second, I mean, anybody could come. But he says, you can't be a wallflower. You're not going to come and hang out and just listen. You have to do the pre-reading and you have to engage and be an active participant. Otherwise, it's a waste of your time and a waste of our time.
0: Yeah. One thing that comes up often when I discuss meetings and best practices, and I don't know if your research has come across any of this, but... The difference in comfort level with introverts versus extroverts, because on my little team here at Bossed Up, over the years, we've had quite a few introverts, and I am a super extroverted leader. And part of my managerial growth over the years has been recognizing and designing meetings that work also for introverts. And I can almost hear the introverts listening getting squeamish at the thought of those Netflix meetings being so performance and and speech oriented because a lot of my introverts who work for me over the years need the time to digest an idea and then come prepared to present their counterpoint. So I I wonder how can we design our meetings with a humanist approach, also knowing that personality differences play a role in, in what works best for your team.
1: Yeah. So if you're a team leader and you're running a meeting and you have introverts, give them as much notice as you can. And so you're going to say on our Wednesday meeting, we are going to go around in the circle and everybody's going to share the answer to X, Y, or Z. So you give them as much of a heads up as you can have them speak earlier. If you're going around, Mm. um, the longer an extrovert waits to have his or her voice heard, it's actually harder to get up the guts to say something. Have them speak early and let them know they're gonna speak and and no surprises. I mean, so interesting, in Todd Yellen's meetings, they know that they have to participate. I'm not saying they're gonna get called on. Sure, sure. But they've read the agenda, they've done the pre-work, and they can then plan when and what they're gonna say. Totally. They just know that they have to say something. So the more information y- you can help them know ahead of time, the, the better. I will also say that as a team leader, you know why is this also important? I mean, we all talk about the importance of diversity and inclusion and you know diversity of race, diversity of gender, but also diversity of thought. And yeah. you can have the most diverse group in a room at a meeting, but if you're only hearing from three of the 10 people, you're not getting the diversity of ideas. And there was actually a study done out of a hospital in an operating room. And in an operating room, you have high stress, high stakes situation. You have men, you have women, you have doctors, you have nurses, you have younger people, you have older people, you have all this stuff going on. And what the study found was that if there's a checklist of things that have to take place in that operating room before the surgery. Mm -hmm. And if one of the things on that checklist is for everybody to go around and actually introduce themselves, mortality rates go down. Wow! And the reason is because there are a lot of introverts. And I think what, 50% of the world is an introvert. So there's a lot of them. I mean, you're not one, I'm not one, but I'm sure plenty of people listening are. And if you, if I'm the patient in that operating room and someone sees something, introvert or extrovert, I really hope that they have the guts to say something. Right. Everybody's had their voice heard early on. There is a much better chance that they will say something if they hear something.
0: It's interesting, Erica, because it also underscores the premise behind so much of your work, which is... Relationships drive connection, drives decision making, and even establishing a rapport by just simply introducing yourself is a relationship that has been sparked. Right, that enables connection, enables more trust, enables more collaboration. I also love the theme and and reasoning and and story behind your spaghetti project. Would you tell us a little bit about the spaghetti project? What is it? Where did you get the idea? And how can our listeners learn more about it?
1: Great. It's similar. It's along the lines of that example in the operating room where I believe, and I believed it on a human level and found a lot of science to back it up, was that that there is a correlation between connection and performance. And that's performance to us as individuals, but also collectively to our businesses. So when I was doing the research for Bring Your Human to Work, I came across a study out of Cornell University by a professor named Kevin Niffen. And Kevin was getting his PhD in organizational psychology and was studying the difference in performance between teams and what he found um, when he started his research was that, well, first he had to pick, you know, who am I going to study to do this? And he decided to study firefighters because his dad was a firefighter and he grew up in firehouses and hanging out with the firefighters. And so the short version of what he found was that the firefighters who are the most dedicated to that longstanding ritual of sitting around the table, connecting on a human level, building trust, those firefighters actually save more lives. And so there was this correlation between connection and performance. And so I started to interview firefighters and when you read about them or watch television shows about firefighters, um, and some of your listeners may know that the... You know, go-to meal, the traditional meal, stereotypical meal for firefighters is spaghetti, spaghetti and meatballs. So it's probably the easiest thing to cook in the firehouse. <laughs> I decided to call my work the spaghetti project, named after the firefighters. And the spaghetti project is is really a platform that shares the science and stories of connection at work. And so companies will bring me in to give a presentation about how to bring their human to work. And we all channel our inner firefighters and and have spaghetti and meatballs, always try to serve gluten-free. People think <laughs> I'm crazy serving serving so many carbs in 2019. Yeah. But it is a comfort food. And you know, I often just go to a city. And so you and I should do one together sometime.
0: We should. I would love that. I'm also a frequent pasta eater in this household. So (laughs) it's very on brand. You know, it's so funny. The whole time you were explaining the study around firefighters, I was reminded of an amazing episode of Queer Eye in the most recent season, I believe, or it might've been a season before, when they actually worked with a whole batch of firefighters. I think their hero that they had been nominated for this sort of more than a makeover show was a firefighter. And instead of renovating his home, they actually renovated the firehouse kitchen and the significance of that was so major because a dingy sad depressing eatery and 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 basically dining hall for this group of men didn't have enough seating for everybody it wasn't designed in terms of interior design for connection. And after the fact, not only was it such a warm and welcoming atmosphere, but it truly changed the frequency with which these men and women ate their meals together. And there were framed pictures on the walls, Harkening back to that historical tradition of firefighters doing just that. I have to go watch that episode. Yeah, you have to. I don't know why it didn't even occur to me when I was reading, but I just thought of it now as you were describing it. And it reminds me of a, a part of your book that I think so many of us don't really put that much thought into. At least I didn't until I ended up marrying an architect who <laughs> taught me that every design decision about whether or not we have an office that's open or a fishbowl style office or or clear glass windows for every meeting room. Those are decisions made intentionally by a bunch of people who are going to impact the day-to-day life of folks who work in those offices. So what did you learn about how to bring your human to work as it relates to design and how we actually design our workplaces?
1: Yeah, so that's why the chapter is called Space Matters, you know, because it it does, but it's not as easy as if you design it, they will come. So I do think it's a combination of thinking very thoughtfully about the design, you know, where do people get together to connect and making sure there is a physical location, but then, but then talking to people about why it's designed this way and getting people to actually use it. And an example recently, I mean, law firms tend to be so behind the times and forward, you know, future forward designs. And, you know, it's still in many law firms is the kind of thing where, you know, the bigger your book of business, the bigger your office. So this one very progressive law firm set up this lawyer's lounge where it would, with the idea being that people would get together and connect. And I said to one of the partners, like, well, does anybody, you know, Does anybody use it? Well, not yet. You know, it's new. And I said, well, the senior lawyers, the partners have to sit there or nobody else will. And so it's a a balance of, again, I I think it goes back to me about that word intentional, Yeah. to figure out intentional ways to use the space. I will also say that this trend of open offices, which many companies do to save money, is is blowing up in many companies' faces because for that to work, you have to make sure that you match the amount of open space that you have with, with enough private space, or it really increases stress. People wear headphones. I've had people tell me that they take vacation days to get work done. To get work done. I've
0: heard that too. It's wild. I, I don't mean to jump in, but oh my gosh, isn't that insane? <laughs> it's crazy making because in the age of disruption and distraction, not only is it our iPhones that are constantly alerting us, but it's our colleagues in an open office space. So yeah, I think you're right. It, it has to start with leadership, being intentional, not only setting the precedent, but also living, you know, walking the walk, which is so much of what you share in your excellent book. One last thing that I just loved about the simplicity, but not necessarily ease, with which you can be more human in your workplace and really design a more human workplace was about saying thank you and actually expressing gratitude, which is so overlooked in our culture, (laughs) at least in, in traditional powerful places of work. And I love this story you share from, is it Indigare? Is that how you pronounce the name?
1: Yeah, Indigare, the travel company.
0: Yes, Indigare has daily gratitude sessions. You're right, at 9 a.m., we grab whoever's around for our morning gratitude practice. The folks at Indigare take turns around the room as each person is invited to offer one thing for which they are grateful and one wish of happiness to another person. And I just thought, what a delightful and simple Practice, but one that I imagine would take a lot of intention to maintain. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think what I liked about this story, there were a couple of things. First of all, it's not mandatory. I mean, these kinds of things don't work. If you're forced to do it, people look around and kind of grab people, but you don't have to do it. And so I think part of it is this opt in almost becomes this contagious. Okay, I'm here. Yeah. This is part of what we do. It's, it's this morning ritual. You know, it feels weird if we don't do it, but it's not this mandatory. Everybody has to be there because then it would not have the same impact. The other thing that I thought was really interesting about it, and this goes back to why is connection good for performance? So after they go around and say something that they're grateful for, I was particularly intrigued by the second piece, which was wishing well to someone. And what that does goes back to the the story where you're driving on the highway and, you know, somebody cuts you off and... (sighs) You immediately think all these bad things versus, you know, what we should be doing is say, well, maybe that person did have an awful day or maybe there's something really going on with that person. You know, how do we raise this sense of empathy? And when I was speaking with, um, Eliza Harris, the CEO of Indigare, you know, she shared, you know, somebody might say I'm wishing well on my first cousin who is really like a sister to me because she's dealing with X, Y, or Z or diagnosed with this, or somebody might share something about a child and one, they feel safe doing it. But all of a sudden it's like, wow, you know, if I'm working with somebody on a, on a project or, you know, we have a client, I might say, Hey, you know what you leave early, you go take care of what you need to take care of. And I'm going to step in. And so, you know, I I think about these kinds of things as, as ways to curate connection. It's creating those connections between and among those employees, but it's also organizationally just raising that, that level of empathy and all of that leads to better company performance.
0: It's interesting. It's almost like by creating the protocol you then enable humans to do what we can do best, which is turn those relationships into opportunities for expressing and showing empathy by caring for one another. Yeah. And without the protocol, without the tradition, without the structure, that might not have happened. That's a really good point. Well, Erica, this has been so wonderful. Tell our listeners what you are focused on now or what's, what's on the docket for what's next for you. So I'm writing a new
1: book on company rituals. Awesome. Actually, I haven't even told people publicly, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell everybody here. It is called, it is going to be called Rituals Roadmap. And the subtitle, which I'm really excited about, is called The Human Way to Transform Everyday Routines into Workplace Magic. And I do think ah. that there is a magical element to these rituals, just like the one we were talking about at, at Indigare. So I'm actively interviewing companies. And if anybody hears this, feel free to reach out, share your own you know, personal rituals, company rituals. I'm all ears and really loving this deep dive on how rituals are good for people and good for business.
0: That's fantastic. I can see this whole like made for Instagram community of my like crystal loving babes and positive psychology peeps alike just jumping on that topic. So congratulations. And thank you for sharing it here first. You heard it here first, folks. You got to keep an eye on Erica Kesslin and her next book. Erica, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: You're welcome. Actually, I would love to add one last quick thing. You can find me on my website, which is just my name, EricaKeswin.com. You know, one of my personal goals, I have twin teenage girls who are 16 and a 14 year old son. And so one of my goals is to um, try to get more Instagram followers than they have. So what I often offer people on podcasts that if they, it's just my name, Erica Keswin, follow me on Instagram, tag you, tag me, tell us something that you enjoyed about The conversation today, and I will raffle off a couple free books and send them to people.
0: To connect further with Erica, head to Erica Keswin, that's K E S. -S 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 win.com to learn more. And I have to share that Erica has generously offered a really fantastic opportunity to win a free signed copy of her book. And guess what? I'm matching her offer. So for three lucky listeners who enjoyed today's interview, take a screenshot or a photo of yourself listening to today's episode, tag Erica Keswin on Instagram and myself at boss org or Emily Aries and tell us what are the biggest takeaways that you got out of today's interview? What are some of your reactions, responses, thoughts, questions, insights that you gleaned from today's conversation? If you tag us on Instagram, where Erica is trying to show up her twin teenage daughters by having more followers than them, Erica and I will choose three lucky listeners who share their responses in the next week on Instagram and we'll send you a free signed copy of both of our books. So get on over to Instagram to enter this giveaway right now. Now it's time for today's Boss Move Moment of the Week.
2: Hi, Emily. This is Sarah calling from Ontario, Canada. I've called in before actually with a Boss Move last November. This is my update, Boss Move. I called in previously with a career, career transition that I had quit my current job and Started at a new company that I was hoping would be a better experience for me and my career. But thanks to listening to your podcast absolutely regularly since you started it, I've listened to every single episode. I've honestly been given the confidence and I'm about halfway through your book as well. I was just able to see the warning signs and of a toxic work environment as well as burnout in myself. And just the way that the company runs. And thanks to the information that you've always provided, like on a regular basis in my life, it's helped me in my career growth. I'm only three years into my career, three and a half. But you've given me the confidence to know what I am worth and what I deserve in a job. So I actually gave my notice at the current company I'm at yesterday. And I am starting back at my old job in two weeks. And then today, my manager reached out to me uh, multiple times to try to get me to stay and to try to, like, express their gratitude and try to convince me to stay and ask me what they can do and try to offer me more money and try to do a lot of backpedaling. But thankfully, I already knew my worth. I know that I don't really like where the company is headed. I, I can look at seniors in their roles and know that they're not right for me and where I want to be. And there's no work life balance, etc, etc. So making another career transition. And I would just like to thank you again for your uh, third party coaching and mentoring through the different outlets that you have.
0: Yes, boss, we are cheering you on and so proud of you. Congratulations. And thanks for calling in your boss move because you never know who you're inspiring. To do the same, when you brag on your bad self, if you've got a career conundrum or a boss move to share, give our Boss Up podcast hotline a ring right now at 910-668-BOSS. That's 2677. Seven. And now I'm headed off to San Jose for the day. Then back to Denver tomorrow night for one day where I will be hosting a fun, free meetup with Lady Killers Denver on Thursday, September 26th. Check it out if you are a Coloradan listening to this. It's gonna be a really fun event. We have tons of people already registered. I'll drop a link to join us in the show notes today. Then the next day, Friday, I'm back to D.C. because I just can't stand still this time of year. We are gearing up for this weekend's Bossed Up Boot Camp. There are still a handful of tickets available. It's the best thing I do. It's the weekend workshop designed for women navigating career transition who want to level up across work, love, and wellness all in one weekend. So register now to join me in D.C. this weekend, or if you can't make it happen this weekend, I will be seeing lots of you in L.A. for our final boot camp of the year on November 16 and 17. Until next time, keep Boston in pursuit of your purpose. Keep tagging us on Instagram. We'll continue the conversation there or at the corresponding blog post of today's episode, bossedip.org episode 160. And let's lift as we climb.